Hello there, everyone, and welcome Dr. Chris Kenobi, a physician, researcher, ophthalmologist, public health advocate, and associate clinical professor emeritus. I don't know if I pronounced that right, forgive me. Yeah. Formerly of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And he is primarily known for his research publications and presentations connecting westernized diets with the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils to numerous chronic diseases, including coronary heart disease, hypertension, stroke, cancers, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, Alzheimer's, autoimmune disease, and age-related macular degeneration. His research has focused greatly on the vegetable oil hypothesis as the primary driver of overweight and chronic disease. And in 2016, Kenobi's formally introduced the hypothesis that processed food and vegetables are the primary driver of AMD, which is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. And most recently, I want to mention, he also wrote two books of one, I just, I have both of them, but I did just complete reading The Ancestral Diet, which I cannot say enough about, and all the graphs and references. It is a must read for anyone who's interested in these topics. So welcome today. I'm excited for our conversation. And, but I do want to begin uh, with the thank question. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay. I, my first I just want to say thank I, you. I appreciate being able to be on your show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. okay. Uh, wonderful. So I wanted to know what, what started your journey in this, because you had a traditional medical practice, uh, ophthalmologist, right? And what started mm -hmm. you on this and opened your eyes, turned the corner? Yeah. What really led me down this path, Bonnie, uh, is my own suffering, um, desperation, really. Um, and the desperation being that I was uh, suffering with arthritis that began when I was 33. So almost, almost three decades ago, and was progressive, up until I was um, 50 years old. And I, um, I, I learned a little bit about the, the paleo diet um, from Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Answer, that year. That was 2011. And I made some, some uh, significant changes in my diet that year. And um, well, within a, uh, within a few days, literally, my arthritis was dramatically improved. Um, improved more than what three medications had ever improved my arthritis before. And this was just life changing. And so I, um, I read Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Answer, and I began to investigate nutrition myself for a couple of years. And then I eventually I came across the work of Weston A. Price, and I began to understand the processed foods, mostly refined flours, sugars, vegetable oils, canned goods, sweets, those kinds of foods were driving chronic disease, oh, like, you know, oh, overweight. Well, this really didn't come from Price's work necessarily, but uh, um, but in, in his work, it was mostly um, degenerative diseases like arthritis and cancers and birth defects and so forth um, and, and dental decay. Um, so, but I, I just kept investigating and I, um, I developed this, the hypothesis that uh, once, once I understood that processed foods were driving uh, overweight, obesity, and all this chronic disease, I hypothesized that the same processed foods might be driving age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, which is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. So I began to investigate that, Bonnie, and for about a year and a half until early 2015, and I was so convinced that hypothesis held water that I left my ophthalmology practice and and began to pursue that full time and and um, formed a small group and we we evaluated that uh, hypothesis by looking at food consumption data 
tracking processed foods using vegetable oils and sugars as proxy markers of processed foods. And the data in 25 nations, every single nation that we studied supported that hypothesis. So I published a paper, published a book, started a nonprofit organization. And anyway, by about 2018 or 2019, I was, I, I just kept um, finding in my research that the huge driver of all of this disease, including macular degeneration, was the vegetable oils. And there just wasn't a lot of discussion about this. And I didn't feel like anybody, anyone was doing it quite the justice that it deserved. And so really, it's I've been on a trek now for about the past five years. I really started this in 2018 and kind of went public with it in 2019, connecting vegetable oils specifically as the major driver of obesity and coronary heart disease, strokes, cancer, diabetes, metabolic disease, macular degeneration, autoimmune, on and on and on. So that's been my focus over these past five years. And that's what this new book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, is all about. It's, you know, it's it's very light on macular degeneration. It's very heavy on all of these other, like the obesity, coronary heart disease, cancers, diabetes, metabolic disease. So that kind of brings you up to date. Yes. Well, maybe you could explain a little bit about how, you know, these oils came into our diet, but also, I mean, compared to other fats that have existed in nature for, you know, since the beginning of time, what is so unique about these particular oils that has made them particularly, uh, you know, problematic? Yes, that's a great question. So if you look at, and we we're, we have a paper that's submitted for pub publication right now where we've tried to look at the history of vegetable oils because it's never really been published in a scientific paper, but the history of vegetable oils and their consumption on a global basis, um, you know, with some emphasis on the United States, but because that's where the data is the best uh, in terms of going back to the 19th century. And, and we've already published data on vegetable oils in the 19th century in the U.S. But, but anyway, if you look at throughout all of history, almost no one ever had any kinds of vegetable oils. There was trivial amounts uh, throughout history of um, coconut oil, palm oil or palm kernel oil, um, sesame oil, um, a few others, uh, and um, and then olive oil, but only, again, all of them together collectively were consumed in trivial amounts throughout history. And then in 18, beginning about 1866, uh, in the United States, cottonseed oil was the first seed oil introduced into the food supply. And Americans really didn't want it. They they weren't interested in consuming an oil that they knew only as a lamp oil or machine oil previously. So was, they, the uh, manufacturers were trying to sell it as food. And that really didn't go over very well uh, since, as I said, people you know thought of it as machine oil and lamp oil mostly. And uh, so... So manufacturers, you know, not to be deterred, they decided to to sell it um, by adulterating other products with it. The first one of the first things they did was create margarine. They called it oleomargarine and eventually it became shortened to margarine. But that was a mix of cottonseed oil and butter. And then they would even use colorant to try to keep the color more like butter. They would, you know, use a yellow dye in that. Um then they then they began to adulterate olive oil and sell olive oil to uh, customers in the U.S. and in Europe. So they were adulterating olive oil in the 1870s. In fact, the French made complaint in 1880 because we'd shipped something like 55,000 barrels, if I remember right. It might have been a lot more. Um, but but anyway, a huge number of barrels of um, so-called olive oil, and they knew it wasn't. They knew it had been adulterated, and they stopped importing our our so-called olive oil altogether. Um, and then in, in 19, 
about nine, well, in 1911, Procter and Gamble introduced Crisco, which is the first ever industrially produced trans fat. But Crisco is a hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. So it came out of the the uh, the cottonseed oil industry as well. And so gradually what happened was is that manufacturers began to sort of sneak the vegetable oils into the food supply and then with Crisco and then and then in 1909 they they introduced soybean oil and then all the others came. Bonnie it was then we got so we had so so after that we got um so it's, we've got soybean, uh, cottonseed, and we got eventually, you know, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, sesame, peanut oils, canola oil, um, all of these other oils that were, you know, were introduced into the food supply because of the fact that there is lots of money to be made. These oils wow. were roughly about one sixth uh, the the cost to produce as compared to butter and Crisco of course they formulated it to look like lard and so so they were using margarine to outsell butter which is again a mix of butter and some type of uh, vegetable oil and they were using Crisco um, to to um, uh, supplant and replace lard right and that's exactly what they accomplished. And, and so gradually, the food supply became more and more heavily laden with these vegetable oils. And I'll give you some numbers here. So if, for example, our data shows in 1865, an average American had zero consumption of vegetable oils. We had none. And by, by 1900, we were about one gram a day. By 1909, we were at nine grams a day because soybean oil was introduced that year. By 1961, we're at 19 grams a day. By 2010, we're 80 grams per person per day. Well, 80 grams is 720 calories. That's 30, 32% of U.S. caloric intake. That's, that's uh, crazy. And um, I just want to mention, yeah. because one of these things that really caught my attention in reading the book is... Of course, uh, something that the these companies had to overcome when they were making these oils, and that is the fact that the oils are rancid and they need to deodorize them. And, and yes. if you could speak about that a little bit, because I I think you know when you give the example of someone, would you ever eat? you know, like four day old fish or or rotten fish oil, I think everyone can appreciate that in their mind, like immediately, but yet we're consuming all of these equally rancid fats, but they have gone through this chemical process. So maybe you could explain about that a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Before I do, let me just mention this, just to, um, just get, let me get the big picture out there real quick to, to the audience. I know you know this, but but so what people probably don't understand is that, for example, obesity in the United States and r roughly the same around all the world, probably, but obesity in the United States in men age 18 to 80 in the 19th century. So 1800 to 1900, roughly 1.2 percent diabetes was effectively unknown 0.0028 percent. That's 2.8 per 100,000 people in 1890. Um, cancers were relatively rare in the early 19th century. Um, only one in 188 people died of cancer. By 1900, one in 17 people died of cancer. By 2010, one in three, one in three people die of cancer. Um, coronary heart disease was unknown in the 19th century. There's eight scientific papers on coronary heart disease for that entire century. Physicians had never seen Heart attacks by the end of the 19th century, essentially almost no one in the world had. 1912 was the first documented heart attack in the U.S. By the 1930s, coronary heart disease became the leading cause of death. It's still the leading cause of death. One out of three people die of coronary heart disease. Um, macular Age-related macular degeneration, um, virtually unknown between 1851 and 1930, less than 50 cases in all the world's literature. By 2020, 196 million people affected with the disease. Um, Alzheimer's disease, one case in 1908, four cases in 1911, several hundred cases by 1970, um, 
Today, 55 million cases in the world and 10 million new cases of dementia per year. So that so all this chronic disease just exploded and it all runs in parallel with the vegetable oils. Oh, and obesity, I didn't mention. So so obesity, you know, climbed from 1.2% in 1900 to 13% in 1960 to 42.5% by 2018 in the US. And diabetes went from 0.0028% in 1890 to 13% by 2016 in the US. That's an increase of 4,643 fold. So all of this ties together. So, um, okay, so back to your question about, well, the, you know, the how, how are these made? Well, first of all, the, the vegetable oils require that they're, the, the seeds, these are mostly come from seeds, um, which is why we, the better term for most of them is seed oils, but these seeds are crushed, heated, pressed, then they're chemically alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized um, before they go into the bottle. They're highly oxidized. And as Bonnie was mentioning, well, they, they need to be deodorized. Well, this deodorization step, um, it's, it's five, typically four or five stages of high temperature heating, um, up to um, a temperature of around 500 degrees Fahrenheit several times uh, in order to remove the stench from these oils. These oils would stink badly because they're so oxidized, the equivalent of decaying fish. Um, so when you have the, and the reason that they do, and, and I need to go back to the your earlier question too, is what makes these different? Well, the the omega-6 fat is really high in vegetable oils and it is naturally very low in all natural food, all natural food. The omega-6 is really low, um, but it runs, you know, it tends to run from 20 to 80% uh, in vegetable oils. And those, those omega-6 fats, they're the ones that um, they um, tend to, oxidize. And when they oxidize, they would stink, just like the omega-3 fats and omega-6 in fish when they oxidize, which is basically this, you know, part of the decaying process, they stink. And so if it weren't, if it weren't for the deodorization step, which was perfected way back around 1900, um, we nobody would be eating vegetable oils because they would stink and they would make your they'd make your food stink and taste awful but that step allows them to get them into the food supply and they're virtually odorless and tasteless it, it makes it hard to understand how we can even call these things food you know because they've been so i mean i think it's you know uh, uh not but but thinking about oxidation right. if if you could talk specifically just for a minute about you know the diet high, heart hypothesis and the oxidized ldl cholesterol and the connection uh you know with with the seed oils and why you know we really are maybe eliminating the wrong fats here yes yes <laughs> absolutely um so to to do this in 1 minute i'll try the here's what I found first of all minutes. is well we'll make it very quick and then we can dig back into whatever you want Bonnie so um but let me get the okay. we'll get the high level view out of the way and and that's what I prefer and everybody else probably prefers anyway um so think of it this way first of all everyone is that um there's been all kinds of populations that have incredibly high saturated fat consumption like the uh, Maasai warriors of Kenya and Tanzania that consumed 40 to 46% of their diet is saturated fat, yet had virtually no heart disease. Um, the Tokelauans of the South Pacific in the 1960s, their diet was 50% saturated fat coming from coconut oil, yet they had no heart disease. Um, 19th century Americans consumed on average about um, 225 pounds of, of uh, meat per year yet had no heart disease. They were consuming uh, on average, probably around 10 to 12 ounces, the adults anyway, 10 to 12 ounces of uh, meat. Um, that's all meat per uh, per day. That could be, when I say meat, I also mean, I mean, uh, most of that would be beef and pork, 
some chicken and some fish. So, so the bulk of it was pork and or beef and pork. But anyway, they had no heart disease. Um, and so what so what we see is we see this um, precise parallel between the increase in vegetable oils and the increase in heart disease. And like the saturated fat was flat through the entire 20th century while coronary heart disease was going through the roof. So it made out if, if, if you could have taken our published data and looked at it back in 1960, no one probably would have ever even begun to point the finger at saturated fat as a cause of heart disease. So, so it, in, and if, if you look at every single population that has heart disease, they're all consuming vegetable oils. And if you look at all of the populations, like the all the hunter-gatherers, the subsistence agriculturists, the um, horticulturists, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the tribes essentially that don't have heart disease all around the world, none of them have vegetable oils, right? Where would they get vegetable oils? They're, because vegetable oils are a product of the industrial revolution. And so that tells you a lot right there. Um, what I think is happening at the molecular level is that um, it is not just LDL cholesterol that drives heart disease. Very simply, it is oxidized LDL cholesterol. That is the only thing that can be taken up into the vascular wall and begin and propagate that atherosclerotic plaque, which ultimately results in the heart attack when um under certain circumstances but but um what drives the oxidized ldl well it is ultimately high omega-6 or vegetable oils because the omega-6 linoleic acid is incorporated into the ldl cholesterol molecule and uh, it goes rancid it rapidly oxidizes and when it oxidizes your um, body wants to re quickly remove that dangerous product from the blood. And so it does. And in the process, it forms an atherosclerotic plaque. And as those progress, they ultimately, if they ultimately can rupture and that's where they, and then a clot forms there and that's how you develop a heart attack or potentially a certain type of stroke, or you could, you know, you could, you know, close off blood supply to um, part of your leg or something like that, for example. So it's very, very simply, I don't think I, in my belief system, uh, I, I don't think it's possible to develop uh, coronary heart disease without high omega-6 diet, which means um, uh, vegetable oils or possibly large amounts of um animals, uh, monogastric animals that get high omega-6, like corn and soy fed chicken and pork, and then also possibly large amounts of nuts and seeds, because nuts and seeds are very high in omega-6. So I don't, we're not meant to be eating those as staples. So that was all, more than a minute, but that's the big overview right there. So, so getting an egg white omelet cooked in, uh, you know, seed oil back in the kitchen is probably not the best idea because they're yeah, still take on the, the menu and, and they yeah, charge get the, if you want to make, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you, I mean, have an omelet with all, you know, with all the eggs you want, if they're ancestrally raised, which means the chickens are not being fed corn and soy that makes their omega-6 low and cook the eggs in butter. So I cook everything in butter. You know, we cook everything in butter. Um, if you need a lot of oil, I would suggest using coconut oil because it's 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. Um, but all the other oil, I mean, just to, if you wanna keep it really simple, I would avoid, I would avoid um, edible oils in general. Well, I, I am on, on board with that. But, you know, the, obviously there's been a big switch in pushing people to these seed oils to lower the LDL cholesterol. But of course, I know it's been correlated with overall, you know, higher mortality risk as well. Right. And, and I, I say something that's uh, that's it's factual and rather humorous all at the same time. I, I, I often introduce this at the beginning of my presentations that. 
the the uh, the major uh, the most prestigious nutrition institutions in the world: Harvard School of Public Health, Tufts University Nutrition Department, Mayo Clinic's Nutrition Department, Cleveland Clinic, the American Heart Association, on and on. They all tell us to consume the so-called heart healthy vegetable oils. And why do yeah. they tell us to consume these? And the answer is one single reason. That is that they lower our cholesterol. And, and then I say, and guess what? So does arsenic. And this is absolutely true. Arsenic lowers your cholesterol. Arsenic does the very, you know, the, uh, the very same things to us pathophysiologically that 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 vegetable oil that the seed oils do uh, because they both work through similar mechanisms they both their primary mechanism of action that's dangerous is oxidation and by the way bonnie i'll just say to to your audience that there's four major pillars of danger through high omega-6 diets and vegetable oils and that is that they are pro-oxidative pro-inflammatory directly toxic through advanced lipid oxidation end products and they're nutrient deficient. They do not contain, vegetable oils do not contain vitamins A, D or K2, none of them of the vegetables, including the healthy ones like coconut oil, palm kernel oil and good quality authentic olive oil. They do not contain those vitamins. The healthy animal fats like lard, butter and beef tallow all traditionally raised, which is important to understand and, and, and follow, those contain vitamins A, D, and K2. They are non-pro-oxidative, non-pro-inflammatory, non-toxic. They do not contain advanced lipid oxidation end products to any significant degree. And they have the, the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K2. So you just have, they're, they're just at polar opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of you know, the, the animal fats traditionally raised are brilliantly healthy and, you know, proven the, the populations that consume only those are incredibly healthy. And the populations consuming the most vegetable oils like like Americans and, um, um, uh, you know, the Israelis, for example, you know, the in Israel, the, uh, you know, we're we're some of the populations in the worst possible health. Yeah, so I always like to explain, listen, if you if you want to be lean and healthy, then you want to eat animals in lean and healthy. And currently these animals we're eating, when you see the fat, you know, that's in the muscle, I mean, that's that's a sign of insulin resistance. And I thought that was a very interesting topic in your book as well with diabetes and you know, talking about China and a lot of the discussion with sugar, because of course, sugar has been demonized. And I don't think you would suggest that sugar or eating high processed carbs is a good idea either. But at the same time, you know, uh, they're very different in, in what happens when you consume these things as those can be burned. And of course, the seed oils are very different. But if you could talk about that a bit, Bit, I think that would be interesting. Yes, absolutely. So you 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 uh, reviewed my viewpoint exactly right. I uh, after after studying this for twelve years and really trying to understand this, and 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 I I just want to say I don't have any hidden agenda. I don't get paid to do this work. By the way, I work for nonprofit organizations. I don't accept compensation from those organizations. I don't accept royalties from my book. I don't care what the answers are, Bonnie, in terms of health. I'm just trying to find the correct answers and uh, for myself and my friends and family and you and our, our, everyone I reach out to. So I'm a public health advocate. I'm just here to try to get to the right answers. Well, it, uh, all of the evidence has led me to believe that it is the vegetable oils, the highly polyunsaturated vegetables or seed oils that are by far and away the most dangerous. If we look at in comparison, uh, sugar and refined flours, they definitely are problematic in my view, um, if they take up significant amounts of the diet because of the fact that that they are nutrient deficient is their main problem. Now, people could react to, you know, have gluten sensitivities and all that. And that that's, that's uh, of course, has to be considered because people can react to any kind of food. But, but sugar, for example, is not, it is not 
pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, or directly toxic uh, uh, to the body like vegetable oils are. Um, the only time sugar can become toxic is when it's fed, and this, this has only occurred in laboratory animals, they feed laboratory animals like 60% sugar diets. Well, there's no population where it even comes close to that. Like Americans consume more sugar per capita than anyone in the world. And we consume 21% of our diet on average as, as sugar. Um, but we were, we were consuming about that much in, in the 1930s. And we were phenomenally healthy back then, or relatively other than the heart disease was going up. But, but we, in comparison to where we are now, we were, you know, obesity was extremely low, about 3%. Diabetes was 0.37%. Metabolic syndrome, I don't think really hardly existed. Alzheimer's was rare. Macro degeneration was rare, you know, go on and on. And, um, but again, but I view that, you know, the fact that so refined flours and refined sugars, Weston Price found that these were problematic foods back in the 1930s. There is no question they are problematic. It's a matter of dose, though, and like all things. And, um, and th those are not our primary problems. Are they problematic? Yes. And every single presentation I've ever given since 2016, so, you know, um, seven years worth, um, I have said there are three things to um, to reduce or eliminate in your diet are refined flours, refined sugars, which is added sugars, and vegetable oils. But of those, I now tell people, try to completely eliminate vegetable oils uh, from your diet and substantially reduce sugars and uh, refined flours if they're higher in your diet. And you just by doing that, you'll automatically be consuming more natural foods and foods that are, you know, non-toxic you know, non for the most part. I mean, I definitely find that people feel better when they, you know, switch within weeks. It's incredible. However, I'd like you to talk about the fact that to me, what also is different about the seed oils compared to, you know, the, the high carbs or processed sugar is the fact that these become part of our cells. And you mentioned in your book, the two to three years of, of them basically, you know, taking for it to come out of your body. I think that is a really important point to think about. So potentially if you're a marathoner, I'm just making this up because I mm -hmm. do work with some of them. I mean, they do the mm -hmm. gels, they can burn off the glucose, but when you're eating the French fry, thinking that you're going to burn another hundred calories, you are completely wrong because it's completely different. So if you could explain uh, that part a little bit. You are absolutely 100% correct. So when we consume um, polyunsaturated fats, omega-6 and omega-3, like you get it, like you get in vegetables, oils, and you get both of those in vegetable oils, um, and, and, and any kind of fat has the, those fats in them, by the way, any kind of fat. Um, um, so we um, accumulate these omega-6 fats. I'll just stick with that to keep this simple. We accumulate omega-6 fats in our bodies. We accumulate those in our cell membranes, our inner mitochondrial membranes, and in our body fat, what's called, you know, scientists or physicians, we call it adipose. And the amount of that omega-6 is reflective of whatever, whatever you've been consuming in your diet for the past three years. And, and as you just said, Bonnie, um, well, the omega-6 has a half, the omega-6 linoleic acid, which is the primary omega-6 fat, it accounts for about 90% of the omega-6 we consume. It has a half-life in our body of 600 to 680 days. So we can round that off to approximately two years. Um, so when you consume French fries that are made in vegetable oil, like you would get in almost every single restaurant in the world today, most of them, um, that you, that those oils then will take up residence in your body and they will, uh, gradually accumulate and you cannot quickly get rid of them. Um, and again, as they accumulate, they set up this biological environment or this biological milieu that is ripe to be pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, and nutrient deficient. 
Now, let me contrast that for a second. Let's say you overeat carbohydrates. Like you, so the first thing that you do is whether it's rice or potatoes or it's even sugar. So you will, you know, you will first replenish, you, you will burn it for fuel if you need to right away, or you will re replenish your glycogen stores, which is your carbohydrate stores in your liver and then in your muscles. And let's say that those are then completely full. They can't take any more, which, which will happen. Uh, if you consume enough carbohydrates or you're regularly consuming carbohydrates, let's say. Um, and now you've got an oversupply of carbohydrates. Well, the, the extra then has to be converted to something. Well, guess what your body converts it to? The first thing it converts it to is saturated fat. And the second most popular thing for it to convert it to is monounsaturated fat. It never, ever, ever converts it into omega-6. It can't. Your body cannot. So... This makes, so this is another reason that your body will, if you give it something healthy to eat, like a potato, just a, a white potato or a sweet potato, um, and you've got, but you've got too many carbs already, um, it's going to convert it into saturated fat. Why would your body convert that into something that's unhealthy for you? Excuse that tells you right away that it's healthy. Sure. I got to plug this in. Hold on. Okay, sure. Okay, no problem. I'm back now. Okay, so um, so uh, it just it just makes uh, it it just makes sense, you know, that uh, we have to be cautious about what kind of fats we consume because again, it'll take you. So once you stop eating vegetable oils, yes, it will take you three years um, to get your body fat adipose or your you know your adipose or body fat fatty acids down to an ancestral level and that that should be very low it should be your omega-6 linoleic acid should on an ancestral diet would be under three percent but the omega-6 linoleic acid in americans for example was had already increased to 9.1 percent by 1959 in americans and by 2008 it was at 21 and a half percent and so this parallels once again obesity, diabetes, metabolic disease, Alzheimer's, coronary heart disease, cancers, all that all runs together with the, so the more of these omega-6s we're accumulating in our body, the more at risk we are for all of these, for overweight, obesity, and all these diseases. Well, you just said something I just want to repeat because I think it is so important that I want to repeat it again. And that is that our own bodies, when it has you know, extra energy from consuming carbohydrates actually produces the very saturated fat that is supposed to be, you know, the demon to kill us. And that that's what our bodies does to us. Are you kidding? I'm just yeah, saying that's exactly when, when we think why, about why, why, it like that. It's like, are we, I don't think so. I think we are built for, uh, you know, survival here. <laughs> and exactly. and there, there, there is, um, a reason. Now, of course, it's a little different, you know, with with the animals, which is why actually before we got on today, I was talking about particularly poultry, just because of the different digestive systems. So when they're consuming all of these seeds, different animals will get different amounts of these problematic fats that are become part of their tissues, just like us eventually. Exactly. Yeah. So so um, beef or cattle or ruminants, the, the ungulates, the hooved animals that are, that are ruminants that have these multi-compartment chamber stomach systems, that one of those stomachs is a, uh, what I call a biohydrogenation chamber. It's, I don't, that didn't come from me, so, but, but, but that, <laughs> that's a good term for it. <laughs> uh, but that, that, that single stomach can take um, uh, foods that are high in omega-6 like corn and soy that, that cattle are fed in, in concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, and it can convert those omega-6s into saturated fat and monounsaturated fat and store that in their, their body fat. So cattle, they maintain a very low omega-6 no matter what you feed them. But now the monogastric animals, which includes humans, chickens and pigs um, and fish, for example, all of us, when we're fed high omega-6, 
we don't have a biohydrogenation chamber. You know, we don't have this fermentation chamber where we can hydrogenate those omega-6s into saturated monounsaturated fats. So we accumulate them. And so this is why um, chickens and pigs, for example, that are fed in CAFOs and fed corn and soy, they will develop very high levels of omega-6 in their body fat, just like humans. And I give an example to the typical chickens and pigs, they'll get to 20 plus percent omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat. And we're eating those. Well, that's as high as canola oil, for example. And again, compare and contrast that to um, beef cattle, chickens and pigs at their when they're fed an ancestral diet which means no corn and soy they're fed their natural diets Mm -hmm. they're all around two to two and a half percent omega-6 linoleic acid that's where most you know most of our you know omega-6 should be coming from is those those foods right there i mean that, that 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 should be a big bulk of it it's hard. You can't, you cannot find a, you know, a past a grass fed chicken. I mean, they're, I found them around the country, but they're hard to come by <laughs> is what I would tell yeah. you. Yeah. You know, we've, we've done some work. We've done, we partnered, we collaborated with um, Angel Acres Farm in, in uh, Michigan. They're one of the few, they're, they're just about the only farm that I know of that's raising chickens um, ancestrally in the United States. So they're, they're, they, they, they taste they, different chickens. They, yeah, they do. They need to be fed some grain, but I think she, I can't remember exactly what her grain is, but they get alfalfa. They get, I think they get some millet, but they get, they, they, they feed off the land. They're eating bugs and worms and grubs and they, you know, and they eat decaying meat and all, all sorts of things, but they're, and they'll eat grass. And if they can get fruit or vegetables, you know, so chickens are not vegans. People need to understand they're <laughs> omnivores. And when well, you see they, you know, they're fed a vegan diet, that's just I, like, you know, it's like feeding, you know, humans. We're not, we're not naturally and, vegans. And you know, it's the same thing for pigs. And they're, when they're fed their natural diet, they're very low in omega-6. Well, so that's, that is how, you know, that's, so we, we tested the fat in the, uh, in Angel Acres farms, chickens and in their, and in their chicken, their eggs, the chicken eggs. And um, they're very, very low in omega-6. Like for example, the eggs, they're about one fifth the omega-6 linoleic acid of what you'd get in a CAFO raised uh, chicken egg. And I bet they taste completely different because you lose all the flavor when you're just finning, you know, feeding them like one kind of food. Do you know they actually add flavor, chicken flavor to chicken now? You, I don't know if you're aware I did of that. not know that, but, but yeah, that's nothing how would crazy. surprise me. That's how crazy this has gotten. Um, yeah. But well, if, well, if I did mention this early, but I really would like you to talk about the, you, there was a study in your book about China and how they traditionally have been consuming the least amount of sugar, although arguably, of course, they do eat white rice. But now they are getting the most uh, diabetes. And uh, you had a mm-hmm. good graph uh, demonstrating about the correlation between the intake of the increase of seed oils uh, with that. But I thought, I think that is kind of shocking for people to hear. And there's so many people that are struggling with you know, pre-diabetes, diabetes. And they say now about 93% of the entire country has some sort of metabolic dysfunction. So, which of course precedes all of our other chronic diseases as well. So I feel like this is a really huge thing to, to mention. Uh, yeah, and this is brilliant. You asked this because I happen to have a few graphs laying here on my desk um, handy that I could reference. Okay. Otherwise, well, I don't have, have all have of this in my head. Oh, if you, <laughs> if you have permission, if you have it on, a, I, I, you know, to share your screen if you would like to. Oh, I'll just discuss it. No, because I don't oh. have it handy where I could pull that up oh, quickly. Okay. But, All I, right, sure. no but I can share the data and it'll, be, it, and it'll hopefully achieve mostly the same effect. But uh, China was interesting to me because um, I, I, I'm always looking for, you know, you want to have a population preferably that had zero sugar, right? Well, China comes pretty close. 
Um, China, since the 1960s, has had incredibly low sugar consumption, like around 20 calories per person per day back in 1961. Um, they peaked at around 80 calories per person per day in the late 90s. And then it's been it's dropped down a little bit. So they're typically been between 60 and 80 calories per person per day, um, uh, which is only two and a half percent of calories. This is the eighth lowest sugar consumption in the world um, for the data that's available, which covers about 170 some countries. This data comes from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Okay, but now let's let me just tell you quickly that their vegetable oil consumption, however, was about 30 calories per day in 1961, also very low. That's about three grams. And then by uh, 2018, their vegetable oil consumption was 204 calories per day. Um, okay, you have to divide that by nine. Um, so it's whatever, that's about um, 10, 20, 20 some grams a day, right? Okay, so so they went from about three grams to 20 some grams of vegetable oils per day on average. And um, so this is what happened to them with, with this is in um, their overweight and obesity during this, the period of about from 1991, um, overweight and obesity climbed from 15.3% um, to 42% by 2013, I believe it was. All right, 15.3% to 42%. Their cancer incidence rose from 495 per 100,000 in 1991 to 1,587 per 100,000 um, by 2016, I believe it was. So their cancer, cancer incidence went up more than threefold, right, during this period. So yeah, cancer uh, went up 3.2 fold between, here's, I should have been looking at some other data, between 1990 and 2017. Diabetes increased from 3.7% in 1990 to 6.7% in 2017. All right, so it almost doubled. Cardiovascular and there was also, get this, a 465% increase in lung cancer while the smoking decreased. Vegetable oils are a strong contributor to smoking. And it's particularly dangerous when you cook with them because they're, they you heat them. And this was proven. Yeah, and you're inhaling the aerosolized uh, yep. advanced lipid oxidation end products. And this is, they were trying to figure out um, uh, what was causing higher lung cancer in women in the 1980s in China, nine, nine tenths of which that I think it was that were getting lung cancer had never smoked a cigarette. And they eventually connected it to the fact that they were much more commonly uh, cooking with rapeseed oil in wok uh, type cooking without even without good ventilation. And so they're being exposed to these vegetable oils, but all these things, you know, cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, overweight and obesity, lung cancer, um, all this going through the roof, right, with almost no sugar in the diet. Two and a half percent of the of the uh, diet is sugar, which is incredibly low. And can we assume just because I think people might ask about, you know, they're known for eating a lot of white rice that that remained somewhat mm -hmm. stable. They didn't have like an explosion of rice consumption. <laughs> yeah, I don't, <laughs> I actually don't have the data on rice consumption itself. And I, and I don't, I don't know if that exists. So I, I could not tell you for sure. Um, generally speaking, you know, when, um, um, like in Japan, the rice consumption has gone way down over the, and, and they've had, they've had even worse, uh, health outcomes since 1960s in a, in a very similar scenario with in, in Japan, you know, with their total calories, their carbohydrates and their sugar all going down while all of these, like well, obesity and all these other diseases go through the roof. 
Um, but their their sugar their um, sugar consumption and their white rice consumption went way down. And I could give specific details on those on that yeah, if you no, want me to. No, I think I think that's. It. I mean, to me, it is. Again, I think it's shocking just how we it is switched everything. So 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 I think what would be helpful now if we could spend a little time going over the. the I think it's. These things are so ubiquitous in our food supply. I mean, I think it's you know impossible for for the majority of people, unless they have access to the farm, you know, to avoid them. But if you would go through the top things that we should avoid and what to eat, of course, in your book you detail this, uh, you know, greatly. And mm -hmm. okay, sure. So the top things to avoid, I would say, um, number one is all of the seed oil type vegetable oils. That would be um, so soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, sesame, and peanut oils. I would try to avoid those. Um, I would mostly, um, I would just mostly keep sugar consumption fairly low. You know, I mean, I, I sure, certainly wouldn't recommend, you know, sugar sweetened beverages or, you know, a lot of added sugars. I just would keep sugars low because it's nutrient deficient food. I would reduce or eliminate refined flours of every type. So whole flours would be better if, as long as they're tolerated. In other words, if people who have gluten sensitivity or um, celiac disease, of course, they cannot be consuming gluten. Um, I think it's by far and away, it's going to be safer if you can afford it to go organic. That way you'll reduce, not eliminate, but reduce your consumption of herbicides, pesticides, and um, you'll be avoiding GMO products. And the GMO products, the, the, the um, uh, are, they're the ones that are, uh, have been sprayed with glyphosate, um, poison roundup. And so that's very problematic. So the, those to me are the main things to avoid. And, and if I can just say this, Bonnie, you know, how do we, how do we do just get that far in our diet? You really need to, for the most part, prepare your own food. It's just really hard. If somebody else is preparing your food, you're going to really have to work at it in order to make sure you're not getting uh, vegetable oils, for example, because vegetable oils are ubiquitous in our food supply. They're ubiquitous in, um, they're almost the exclusive uh, oils used uh, in uh, restaurant cooking, fast food cooking, and in almost all processed foods. You will rarely find butter, healthy lard, or beef tallow in uh, processed foods. So that would be yeah, the no, a, a big start right there. But okay, I have a I yes. have a trick question for you. Sure. Given if you had to give a choice, you're out to eat to either eat conventionally raised chicken or farm raised fish. What would you choose and why? <laughs> um, I have my answer, but I want to know if you agree with me. <laughs> It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, kind of, kind of is. Well, the farm-raised fish is going to be a lot lower in omega six, um, and so really? yeah, I be, yeah for sure, it's going to be a lot lower in omega six. Um, I can't give you those numbers right off the top of my head, but okay. you know, fish is fish is naturally really, really extremely low. Like like uh, wild caught fish is extremely low in omega six. Um, and so, but it definitely will accumulate to much, you know, to, to substantially higher degrees, but it doesn't even begin to compare to what chicken, what chicken or pork would get to. So just in terms of the omega-6, I would say that you're going to be far better off with farm-raised fish. But that's my, that's my view. And I might, that one is, you do, you did throw me a curve there. I hadn't thought about that one specifically, but I, I well, should go to my book and look at what the, what the omega-6 gets to, because I can't remember what that well, one, I'm a numbers guy, but I can't questions. remember that number. 
I mean, the microplastics, the toxins, the, you know, all the pesticides. I mean, it, it, yeah. it but, but these are, you got to eat something if you're hungry and you're out. It's just, you know, these are the kind of things that people are dealing with that are, that are, are watching that do go out. I mean, I live in uh, Sarasota here where it's a retirement community. So this is part of my, uh, daily discussion with people is how to how to go out to eat and um so i do give them a handout to try to pick you know obviously not doing the dressing you know uh, get steamed vegetables with the actual olive oil butter on the side and then what animals to try to pick out but but it's it's definitely um like going in a minefield you know and trying to avoid avoid these things but i think we can uh, greatly uh, uh eliminate it for for sure for yeah. you know i mean this this is yeah. not this is not but when when people do make you know those changes I think mm -hmm. they do feel so, so much better that to me, that should be the motivation on a daily basis. It may, right? I would hope. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I, I tell people that, I mean, it may take, a, it may take uh, months um, to, um, to really start, let's say, for example, if, if weight loss is your goal, um, that it, it, it may take a few weeks or a few months where the elimination of vegetable oils is really starting to catch up and you're getting you're you're getting those results that you want but you will be metabolically healthy with with healthier within hours after eliminating vegetable oils from your your um your consumption because um because the fact that they're pro-inflammatory the inflammatory mediators uh, in uh, the, the vegetable oils drive um, those like the, in, you know, the inflammatory prostaglandins, eicosanoids, leukotrienes, thromboxanes, all of these, they drive inflammation, vasoconstriction and clotting. And these will, they will drop within hours after getting the vegetable oils and your omega-6 down. So you will be, if you don't eat vegetable oils today, you will be at lower risk of a heart attack and stroke tonight. Wow. So can this explain why sometimes after a meal, like you just feel like lethargic and, you know, way down? I think when you're eating the French fries, potatoes and things like that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if that, that is so complex. That's such an easy question. It's such a so many complex things going on there. I think a lot of the the fatigue, Bonnie, you might know this better than me, but um, but I think some of this, a lot of this fatigue is driven by uh, by nutrient deficiencies in terms of minerals, and um, and this is another entire topic. But we're we are extremely mineral deficient in our in our population because of the fact that we have so much processed food the if you think about it with you know by by 2009 63% of the american diet was made up of vegetable oils sugars refined flours and trans fats 63% well those don't have any really all up beneficial um uh, vitamins or minerals. I mean, we've got the, the vegetable oils will have some vitamin E and vitamin K1. But other than that, they have none of them have any minerals, right? Or they're just right. almost mm -hmm. completely mineral deficient. And there there goes 63% of your diet as um you know, with food that right. provides and you no nutrition that your body needs. And we are so uh James Danicola Antonio has uh presented this in his book The Mineral Fix and he's talked about it on many podcasts that the that um 30% of Americans have 10 or more mineral deficiencies and probably lots of Americans have 20 and 30 or more mineral deficiencies we need 82 minerals in our diets people just don't think about all these and we're extremely deficient in in magnesium, potassium, and calcium, but also copper and iron are very, very common, and um, and it's all because yeah. of our nutrient deficient diets. And and yeah, so, no, I... but but those nutrient deficiencies will drive fatigue. 
And I would also say they drive hunger because, mm-hmm. I, you know, we, we, we also, we, we are hungry or have an appetite. It's beyond the major macronutrients. And I think, you know, like I was talking about the chickens earlier, having no flavor, we really eat food also for the flavor because those, the flavor that was in food before, like tomatoes that now taste like cardboard, those flavors actually are associated with nutrients that used to be there that told, you know, that we need like the minerals. So that's why, you know, all of the flavorings and all that, there was a fantastic book I read uh, called the Dorito effect, which I recommend that one, but that's what he talks all about that yeah it's it's pretty interesting just what's happened uh to our food supply all right i just just one more little comment here i just because i just know this is really a a driver for many people and and that is uh obesity and one of the things that you laid out so nicely in your book was uh the way that these affected our fat cells and our mitochondria, inflammation, and our appetite. And I thought you did an excellent job in explaining how these fats are really uh, connected with obesity. So maybe we could end by discussing that for a bit. Yes, absolutely. Probably the most important topic uh, uh, that that we could even discuss. Um, I I believe, and I've presented on this at, at multiple conferences that in in my view the vegetable oils are accounting for probably about 90 percent of obesity worldwide um it's not necessarily uh you know just 90 percent in any single given population but uh, if we look at the whole world i think that's where 90 percent of the problem is the main reason this is, and I, I don't think I'll go into every single mechanism, but the main reason that I believe this is, is it's um, number one is, is the high omega-6 diets are damaging to the inner mitochondrial membrane of our mitochondria. And when they damage the mitochondria, we have, uh, I'm going to keep this a very high level. We have loss of energy production through the electron transport chain and when that happens your the the cells cannot properly burn fat for fuel because you've dismantled the most um, fundamental operation which is the electron transport chain to produce energy so the cells then they um then will uh begin to just store the fat, which becomes lipid droplets. And um, at the same time, this, this damage to this electron transport chain causes increased reactive oxygen species. And the immediate effect of that is insulin resistance. And so everybody talks about the fact that all of these disorders, ob- you know, overweight, obesity, and then even all these disparate seemingly disparate conditions like atherosclerosis, you know, coronary heart disease, strokes, cancers, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all of these, Alzheimer's, all these disorders, they all share mitochondrial dysfunction and insulin resistance at their core. Well, so why do they share this at their, at their, you know, the most fundamental level? It's because they're all connected by this mitochondrial dysfunction, which is driven by this, the seed oil on the high omega-6 diets. So, so now if you go back to that cellular level where it said the store, that uh, I mean, sorry, the cell then begins to store the fats because it can't properly burn those for fuel. Well, the cell is a microcosm of the entire body. So we're just, whatever we are, something like a 40 trillion cell mass and that's what's happening all over our bodies we're storing fat that can't properly be burned for fuel um, because of this high omega-6 and we're gaining weight but we're also tired fatigued because we can't properly burn fat for fuel Um, we can burn carbohydrates for fuel properly still because that's glycolysis and that's outside of the mitochondria and so we we're still running that okay that runs okay and this is why you know as you're gaining weight you know as you gain weight or become obese 
you tend to be, you know, fatigued, probably for a lot of reasons, but this is a major reason. You're fatigued, um, you're gaining weight, and you're really now craving carbohydrates because at least you can burn those properly for fuel still. So, so all this fits together in my view, based primarily on what I just described there. There's other mechanisms, which I won't get into, but that are reviewed sure. in the book. But the hunger, yes, the cannabinoid system and how yeah, it makes you that, hungry that, on top of that. So that, absolutely. I, I just think, I mean, this is, this is, it's like, it's like the perfect storm, you know, right. it's like we have all this fat, but we can't get to it. And um, all of that. Well, I, I I think this was great. Is there anything else you would uh, like to share? Um, I'll just share this. Um, I'll leave this at the very last. This is, if I can bring this up here, this is yes. our new book called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. And this reviews all of this kind of uh, information and so, so, so much more um and uh, that book is available at uh, online or uh, retail uh, booksellers like amazon um barnes and noble and books a million all those um and i would just ask anyone who reads it we would love to get your review on amazon because it helps spread the message and again this is it's beneficial to our nonprofit foundations and to our goals of, of getting this message out there and, and our goals of doing further research that supports this, this kind of uh, evidence that we hope one day will change allopathic medicine, will change conventional medicine, and physicians uh, will begin to understand this and tell their patients about it. And um, um, so, so that's our ultimate goals is to you know, change the world in this way. Well, I am on board. And after reading the book, I would just also share that, you know, with the 1200 plus references that are in there, it's, that was amazing. And all of the charts to really illustrate all of your points was, uh, you know, really helpful. And, and again, quite like, you know, sh shocking. So it wasn't just one random thing. And I mean, the, you know, to me, the bottom line is, you know, we're eating food that is actually not meant uh, for humans. Couldn't agree more. We are. That's we it. Are. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this interview. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Bonnie. It's been an honor and pleasure.